Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. This episode is going to be the third and final installment of a mini-series covering several of the high-yield topics you need to know as it relates to labor and delivery. In part one, we talked about the onset of labor, an overview of the three P's and the three stages of labor. In part two, we went over the basics of fetal heart tracing and the biophysical profile. In this episode, we're going to discuss a wide variety of topics, sort of like a grab bag of several high-yield scenarios and topics that you need to know for both test day and for the wards. Topics we'll be discussing today include preterm labor, preeclampsia, C-sections, and various other obstetrical emergencies, including anticipating many next step in management type questions. So without further ado, let's get into it. According to ACOG, preterm birth is the leading cause of neonatal mortality. Preterm labor is defined as labor onset prior to 37 weeks of gestation. We discussed labor onset in detail in a previous episode, but in summary, labor onset is generally recognized by rupture of the amniotic sac with associated regular uterine contractions combined with cervical changes of dilation and effacement. The earlier in gestation the fetus is, the more likely there is to be risk of morbidity and mortality. There are screening tests to evaluate the risk for preterm labor. The first test is to evaluate for cervical insufficiency, which uses an ultrasound to measure the cervical length, which tends to be shorter in those who are high risk for preterm labor. Then there's the fetal fibronectin test, which is a cervical swab that can detect a protein called fetal fibronectin around the mom's cervix. Fetal fibronectin can be thought of as sort of a glue that keeps the amniotic sac stuck to the uterus. If the amniotic sac becomes detached from the uterus, then fetal fibronectin is released, causing it to secrete near the cervix. Preterm labor can be prevented using progesterone supplementation by taking intramuscular hydroxyprogesterone, brand name McKenna, once a week anywhere from 16 weeks to 34 weeks gestation. And if there is cervical insufficiency identified on ultrasound, then a cerclage can be placed anywhere from 12 to 22 weeks gestation, which basically stitches the cervix closed. There are a few interventions that can help protect the premature fetus during preterm labor. These treatments can be broken up into three main categories, fetal lung maturity, tocolysis, and fetal neuroprotection. As I'm sure you remember, Fetal alveoli are not developed enough to adequately diffuse gases enough for respiration until about 34 weeks gestation. To stimulate fetal lung maturity, we give a course of antenatal steroids, either IM betamethasone or IM dexamethasone, anywhere between 24 to 34 weeks. 
Steroids work in this case by stimulating the production of surfactant, which allows the alveoli to be lubricated enough to slide past each other and expand. Some organizations like ACOG recommend steroids for fetal lung maturity up to 37 weeks, but that's a little more controversial and I believe less likely to be tested on. For tocolysis, the idea is to use various medications to inhibit uterine contractions, thereby prolonging the pregnancy. The misconception here is that a lot of people think that tocolysis can be used to delay the pregnancy until the fetus is at term. However, this isn't always the case, and the primary reason we like to use tocolysis is to give the fetus enough time as possible, ideally up to 48 hours, to stay inside the mom while other treatments are underway, including steroids, and to transfer to another medical center if needed. First-line tocolytic agents include NSAIDs like indomethacin or calcium channel blockers like nifedipine. Second-line agents include beta-2 agonists like terbutaline or also magnesium. Tocolysis can be dangerous for the mother and the fetus and should be reserved for pregnancies that are relatively low risk. The third area of treatment for preterm labor is fetal neuroprotection. Due to the immaturity of the baby's ability to oxygenate itself, preterm infants are at risk for hypoxia. Tons of babies tend to get a bit of peripheral cyanosis as they adjust to their new environment at birth, but for preterm babies, this adjustment is much more difficult. The developing brain is particularly sensitive to hypoxia during this period, and as a result, preterm infants are at higher risk for permanent neurological damage like cerebral palsy. To prevent this, there is a very important drug that is given for neuroprotection. Do you know what it is? Well, I really hope you're thinking about magnesium sulfate. Magnesium tends to come up a lot in pregnancy. It's a weak tocolytic. It's extremely effective in preventing seizures in women with preeclampsia, as we'll soon discuss. And it also protects the fetal brain from injury by preventing excitotoxic calcium-induced injury. Magnesium, however, also carries some risk, so it's important to monitor for signs of magnesium toxicity, which include respiratory depression, a loss of deep tendon reflexes, right upper quadrant pain, oliguria, headaches, visual disturbances, and confusion. If toxicity is confirmed by laboratory testing, treatment is with calcium gluconate. And now that we mentioned it, let's discuss preeclampsia. I think we all know that preeclampsia is associated with high blood pressure during pregnancy, but do you remember the classic triad? It's high blood pressure, edema, and proteinuria. The cause of preeclampsia is a bit complicated, but can generally be thought of as pathologic blood flow within the placenta. Preeclampsia is not to be confused with gestational hypertension. Both preeclampsia and gestational hypertension are diagnosed after 20 weeks of gestation without a prior history of hypertension, and both are associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. But generally, gestational hypertension does not have proteinuria or any of the known severe features that are associated with preeclampsia. Preeclampsia can be diagnosed with or without severe features, and these features can include thrombocytopenia, impaired liver enzymes, right upper quadrant pain, acute kidney injury, pulmonary edema, and or a new onset headache or visual disturbance. 
there is a specific type of preeclampsia which has been named as its own syndrome. Do you remember the name? That's right, it's HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P, which stands for hemolysis, L-elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. In women with preeclampsia, the multitude of adversely affected organ systems eventually reaches the brain, leading to new onset seizures. Once seizures occur, preeclampsia is now officially considered eclampsia, and this is a leading cause of maternal death, especially in low-resource settings. Magnesium is extremely effective in preventing the development of preeclampsia into eclampsia. For cases of severe hypertension, defined as systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or diastolic greater than 110, you could use antihypertensive therapy. And do you remember the names of four drugs that are often used to decrease blood pressure in pregnancy? I like to think of the mnemonic, New Moms Love Hydralazine, which stands for Nifedipine, Methyldopa, Labetalol, or Hydralazine, all of which are safe and effective for both mom and baby. But never ever give an ACE inhibitor or an ARB to a pregnant woman or a woman who is planning to become pregnant due to the teratogenic effects of ACEs and ARBs. And lastly for preeclampsia, the definitive treatment is delivery of the baby, which should pretty much resolve everything. Alright, next let's do a breakdown of C-sections. There are two main surgical approaches to C-sections. The safest and most common is to make a transverse incision across the bottom of the abdomen. This approach avoids disrupting too many abdominal muscle fibers and carries less risk of surgical complications like dehiscence. The other type of incision is called the classical incision, which is an up and down cut right at the midline. Classical incisions are usually reserved for situations where a transverse cut is not possible, such as cases where there might be abdominal adhesions that are blocking the way. Sometimes, a woman who has had a prior C-section may wish to undergo a natural vaginal delivery for her next pregnancy. This can be attempted in something called TOLAC, or trial of labor after cesarean. TOLAC carries risk of uterine rupture, therefore it should only be attempted in the presence of trained hospital staff. There is one very important contraindication to TOLAC, however, and that is women who have had a prior classical C-section with an up and down incision. Classical C-sections carry a higher risk of uterine rupture, therefore TOLAC should not be attempted with this population. So how do we decide who gets a C-section? First, there are primary C-sections, which are usually planned ahead of time, and this can be due to both maternal or fetal factors. For example, placenta previa, where the placenta is attached at the lower uterine segment blocking the birth canal, or severe uterine abnormalities such as the presence of large fibroids, or other less indicated scenarios such as breach presentation or suspected macrosomia. Next are secondary C-sections, which are defined as C-sections that are performed after labor has already begun. And this could be due to an arrest of labor, infection like chorioamnionitis, abnormal fetal positioning, maternal exhaustion, and or inadequate contractions. And then there are emergency sections, 
which should be done if there is imminent risk to the life of the fetus or the mother, including severe vaginal bleeding of unknown cause or in cases of uterine rupture. Another thing to remember about C-sections is that newborns who are delivered by C-section are at increased risk of transient tachypnea of the newborn, or TTN. This is one of those disorders where the name of it pretty much describes what it is. Transient, meaning it lasts for less than 24 hours, tachypnea, fast breathing, and newborn. C-section babies are more likely to get TTN because they don't get to experience all the hormones that are naturally made by the mom during labor. And a lot of those hormones, like epinephrine, are responsible for pushing out and clearing the fluid that is normally in the fetus's lungs. The classic x-ray for TTN is bilateral, symmetrical, hyperinflated lungs with a grass gland appearance throughout. Oxygen therapy may be required in some cases, but most cases of TTN resolve completely within a day or two. Okay, that's about it for C-sections. Now let's discuss some various causes of hemorrhage in the antepartum and postpartum period. Antepartum hemorrhages are defined as bleeding from the genital tract that occurred during the second half of pregnancy. The first and most straightforward cause of antepartum hemorrhage are genital lacerations, which can generally be repaired. Next, there's placental abruption. So normally the placenta is attached to the uterine wall in the upper uterine segment, but in placental abruption, this attachment is disrupted, resulting in hemorrhage. The big preventable risk factors to remember for placental abruption are cocaine and tobacco use. Next, placenta previa, which is basically where the placenta is situated in the lower uterine segment, blocking the cervical os, thereby blocking the birth canal. The big risk factor to remember for placenta previa is scarring, either from previous C-sections or from a procedure like dilation and curatage. Placenta accreta is when the placenta is attached too deeply into the uterine wall. Normally, the placenta is attached to the decidua, which is a temporary layer of the uterine wall that is supposed to shed during delivery. In placenta accreta, the placenta is attached deeper into the endometrium of the uterine wall and can lead to retained placenta during the third stage of labor, leading to hemorrhage. There's also placenta increta and placenta pancreta, which can be thought of as sort of a spectrum of placenta accreta. Placenta increta is where the placenta is attached even deeper into the uterine wall, into the myometrium, making it even harder to remove. And placenta percreta is the most severe, where the placenta can attach itself throughout the uterus and potentially even to nearby organs such as the bladder. Similar to placenta previa, a major risk factor for placenta accreta, increta, and percreta is uterine scarring. Next, vasa previa, where the vessels of the umbilical cords are situated near the cervical os, and if not diagnosed in advance, are at risk for rupture during a cervical exam. There is something called the APT test, which could detect the presence of fetal blood in the hemorrhage, and if this is positive, then the treatment is to perform an emergency C-section. Next, uterine rupture is pretty self-explanatory, and this is where the wall of the uterus is broken and fetal parts are able to be felt way up into the abdomen and contractions are no longer able to be felt. This is obviously an emergency, and the treatment here is emergency C-section. And before we leave antepartum hemorrhages, 
let's do a really quick summary of, in terms of whether it's painful or painless because that will help a lot in narrowing down the correct answer with any given clinical picture. So for placental abruption, it's going to be very painful. For placenta previa, it's going to be painless. For uterine rupture, painful. For vasa previa, painless. And for placenta accreta, it's generally painless. But as the placenta invades further into the myometrium and even further into the surrounding structures, that's when it will become painful. Now let's move on to postpartum hemorrhage. As we get into the various types of postpartum hemorrhage, keep in mind that treatment here will generally follow one of two routes. In emergency situations where it becomes clear that the mother will die otherwise, the answer is always going to be to do an emergency hysterectomy. On the other end of the spectrum, where the hemorrhage is not so severe, treatment will start conservatively with medications, then work its way up. Uterine atony is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage, and this is where the muscles of the uterus are so weak from a strenuous labor that they are no longer able to adequately contract, thereby allowing all the blood vessels in the uterus to remain dilated, leading to hemorrhage. The classic exam finding for uterine atony is a soft, boggy, non-contracted uterus on abdominal exam. Medical management for uterine atony will include uterotonic agents like oxytocin, methylergonavine, carboprost, or mesoprostol, which help the uterus to contract and constrict the blood vessels. Some key points that are highly testable about these is that oxytocin is the safest to use with minimal side effects, methylergonavine can increase blood pressure so it shouldn't be used with anyone with hypertension, and carboprost is associated with bronchospasm in asthmatics, so make sure you're aware of those associations. If bimanual exam and medications don't work to resolve uterine atony, you can use a balloon filled with saline to create a uterine tamponade. Next, let's discuss retained placenta, which is exactly what it sounds like, where pieces of placenta gets left behind after delivery. Retained placenta and other retained products of conception should be removed manually or by dilation and curettage. A dilation and curettage, or DNC, is a procedure whereby the cervix is dilated and tools are used to scrape and scoop the inside lining of the uterus. Next, uterus inversion is where part of the uterus sticks out through the cervix and presents as a round bulge protruding from the cervical os. Treatment here is to use your fist to manually apply pressure on the protruding part until it slides back through the other side of the cervix. And another dreaded form of postpartum hemorrhage is disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. This is more common in cases of fetal death, placental abruption, or sepsis. And if DIC or any other coagulation disorder is suspected, coagulation studies should be performed with treatment being blood factor or blood product replacement. The classic exam sign for DIC is blood oozing from IV lines. And the last few little high-yield tidbits for this episode, amniotic fluid embolism is a rare but devastating event where basically amniotic fluid enters the bloodstream and abruptly causes cardiorespiratory collapse with associated DIC. Sheehan syndrome is postpartum necrosis of the anterior pituitary gland, 
This occurs because during pregnancy, the pituitary gland undergoes massive hyperplasia to create more hormones such as prolactin, but it does not get an increase in blood supply to match the demand. So in a case of postpartum hemorrhage, there can be a shock to the blood supply of the anterior pituitary leading to hypoxia and necrosis of those cells, which leads to symptoms of panhypopituitarism. Note, however, that the posterior pituitary has a separate higher pressure blood supply, so diabetes insipidus is not usually associated with Sheehan syndrome. And lastly, Asherman syndrome, which is where scars form inside the uterus from either previous surgeries or after a DNC and can lead to infertility. And that's about it. I know it was a lot of information, so let's review what we learned with some practice questions. Question one. A 27-year-old G2P1 woman comes to your office for a prenatal visit. Her estimated gestational age is 16 weeks based on LNP and first trimester ultrasound. Her first child was born premature at 34 weeks and is now five years old and healthy. The mother asks you which steps she should take to prevent another preterm delivery. Which of the following is the most appropriate intervention at this time? A. Recommend the placement of a cerclage. B. Recommend bed rest until labor. C. Recommend IM hydroxyprogesterone now and once a week until 34 weeks gestation. D. No interventions are indicated at this time. Answer C. Recommend IM hydroxyprogesterone now and once a week until 34 weeks gestation. Progesterone is a hormone that is naturally secreted by the body during pregnancy and helps to inhibit the uterus from contracting. Therefore, weekly supplementation with progesterone is thought to prevent preterm labor for some individuals. Placement of a cerclage may be indicated if the patient is found to have a short cervix, but that information was not provided in the question stem and bed rest is not shown to prevent preterm labor, and physical inactivity can lead to other health problems, including blood clots. 2. A 26-year-old G1P1 woman at 37 weeks gestation presents to the emergency department by her OBGYN after recording a blood pressure of 190 over 110, along with proteinuria identified on your analysis. After being given antihypertensives, She's also started on an IV drip of a medication known to prevent dangerous sequelae of her condition. After a few hours, she begins to complain about a headache. Which of the following exam findings would be concerning for toxicity of this medication? A. Exquisitely tender left lower quadrant. B. Hyper-responsive deep tendon reflexes. C. Intense, frequent uterine contractions, or D, respiratory depression? Answer, D, respiratory depression. This patient is being treated with magnesium to prevent the conversion of preeclampsia into eclampsia. Signs of magnesium toxicity include respiratory depression, a loss of deep tendon reflexes, right upper quadrant pain, oliguria, headaches, visual disturbances, and confusion. Question 3. A 32-year-old G3P2 woman 
at 39 weeks gestation presents to the emergency department with vaginal bleeding. The bleeding started abruptly one hour ago and is painless. Upon further questioning, her last child was born by a C-section due to an intra-amniotic infection during labor. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's current hemorrhage? A. Placental abruption. B. Uterine rupture. C. Placenta previa. Or D. Vasa previa. Answer. C. Placenta previa. This woman at 37 weeks gestation with a prior history of C-section is reporting abrupt, painless vaginal bleeding. This clinical picture is most consistent with placenta previa, where the placenta is attached in the lower uterine segment on or near the cervical os. Unlike placental abruption or uterine rupture, placenta previa presents as painless bleeding. Vasoprevia, which is also painless, is due to the rupture of umbilical vessels situated near the cervical os, usually as a result of a cervical exam, which was not consistent with this patient as she began bleeding before presenting to the ED. Question 4. Which of the following treatment options are most appropriate for a woman in preterm labor at 32 weeks? A. Betamethasone and magnesium. B. Indomethacin and magnesium. C. Betamethasone, indomethacin, and magnesium. Or D. Magnesium alone. Answer. C. Betamethasone, indomethacin, and magnesium. At preterm labor at 32 weeks, you're going to approach management in three ways. Steroids, like betamethasone, for fetal lung maturity. Tocolytics, like indomethacin, to inhibit uterine contractions and magnesium for fetal neuroprotection. Question 5. A 22-year-old woman at 18 weeks gestation is found to have a blood pressure of 160 over 90. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment option? A. Lisinopril. B. Magnesium. C. Hydralazine. Or D. Atorvastatin. Answer, C, hydralazine. This woman is at 18 weeks gestation with high blood pressure. You would only give magnesium for high blood pressure if you're suspecting preeclampsia, which is diagnosed after 20 weeks gestation. And remember, never to give an ACE or an ARB to a pregnant woman due to teratogenic effects.